We come to a new topic as we've begun seeing how Paul is addressing the worship behavior within the church. And we look today at the Lord's Supper specifically. And one thing that I've really enjoyed about this passage of Scripture, unlike many others before it, is that it's not challenging with a lack of information. It's not difficult in understanding the specific culture that Paul is speaking about. It is very, very clear. There are very there are several interesting elements within this that I hope will deepen your appreciation for God's Word and help you to pursue it more seriously than perhaps when you arrived this morning. So today we look at the Lord's Supper. It's one of two ordinances that we observe, the other being baptism. The Lord's Supper or communion was quite different in first century Christianity than it is today. It was common to have what was called a communal meal or a love feast. And because churches didn't occupy a large building, they went from house to house. Segments of Christians would gather in various houses around the city, around the area. They would enjoy a supper together, and at the conclusion of that meal, they would have a celebration of Christ's sacrifice for salvation known as the communal meal or communion. So as we know, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during Passover week, the holiest week, the holiest day for the Jew. And God instituted the Passover when He had delivered His people from 400 years of bondage to the nation of Egypt. The meal celebrated the death angels passing over the houses of whose doorposts and lintels were smeared with lamb's blood. The lamb itself was roasted and eaten along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, thus creating the Passover meal and the Passover celebration. We're reminded of this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, where God says, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So Jesus transformed the Passover meal when he instituted the Lord's Supper, doing so during Passover week. And the Passover meal that Jesus institutes in the Lord's Supper is of a much greater significance of what the Passover foreshadowed. The Passover meal was the most significant event in the life of the Jew, and as significant as that was, Jesus' ordinance of the Lord's Supper during Passover week exponentially increased its significance because all that the Passover meal had pointed towards was going to be realized in the person, the life, the work of Jesus Christ. So when we come to the table, we eat His body and drink His blood. We remember the spiritual and eternal redemption that He brought with the sacrifice of His body and the offering of His blood. The Passover celebrated the temporary physical deliverance of the Old Covenant. The Lord's Supper celebrates the permanent and spiritual deliverance of the new covenant. Jesus said in Luke 22, 20, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. No longer would animals be sacrificed in order to symbolically cleanse people from their sin. Jesus' blood would be sacrificed to cleanse us from our sin guilt once for all time for all of eternity. So the significance of the celebration was lost on the church in Corinth and Paul was not about to leave this issue unaddressed. So this is a very lengthy passage of Scripture and I'm going to divide this into three points in an outline and because of the length of the Scripture that we're going to be looking at, I'll read each passage as it relates to the individual point of the outline. So beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 17, we're going to read down to verse 22, and then I'll make some comments about that. Verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, I, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? 
In this I will not praise you. So first of all, we're going to look at the rebuke that Paul begins as he deals with this issue of the Lord's Supper as it's being practiced in the church in Corinth. Back in verse 17, but in giving, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In our last section, Paul was able to offer them a very small amount of praise, and it's very difficult to find a lot of praise for the church in Corinth in this letter, but Paul was not able to offer them any amount of praise as he comes to this incredibly significant event in the life of an individual believer and in the life of a church because of the way they had lost sight of its significance. The term instruction here indicates that Paul is using his apostolic authority to correct a problem, and this is a way of helping them to understand its significance in their lives. Paul says that they come together not for the better, but for the worse. It's really important to understand the word worse in the Greek language and what that means. The word worse represents Moral evil. Imagine such a thing being said about any church that gathers that when you come together, it's not for your good. It's actually contributing to your moral evil. I don't know that I've ever been in a church service where I felt like it was contributing to my moral evil, but this is what Paul is saying about the church in Corinth. It isn't helping them love the Lord. It's not helping them love the people. It's not helping them be more committed to His purposes. So instead of celebrations being times of loving fellowship and spiritual enrichment, they involved instead selfish indulgence, humiliating the poorer brethren, disrespecting the Lord's sacrificial death, and tarnishing the church's reputation in an unbelieving world who was watching their observances. Paul gives three examples of how their gatherings are are, are adding to their moral evilness. The first example that he gives is divisions. Verse 18 says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, if you remember all the way back in the first chapter, Paul began to address divisions that were taking place within the church, and this expose, if you will, went on for several chapters as Paul dealt with their love for philosophy and for worldly wisdom and instruction and how it created great differences in the body of belief that existed within the church. So Paul has addressed this from the very beginning in this letter, and here it resurfaces again, and that word in the Greek divisions comes from the word schismata, which is our word for schism. A schism refers to cutting or tearing, and metaphorically it Describes the severity of the divisions that exist amongst the Corinthian Christians. There are loyalties to different leaders creating groups that are fighting with each other. And I would imagine that this is a part of what's taking place during this communal meal, during this love feast, is that there is the arguing and the factious nature is being brought to the surface in their gatherings. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul dealt with this, he says in verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels amongst you. Quarreling is a strong word for arguing. It isn't, well, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I'm not going to get into it right now. It is in your face telling you what I think and what I believe and why you're wrong. And this is what's taking place within the church. So it's apparent that these divisions have carried over into the gatherings. It's not just some theoretical idea, but it's actually being lived out amongst them in their gatherings. And it has surfaced in their observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, the vision exposes spiritual sickness. Verse 19, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. This is the first of a couple of things that I find to be very interesting in here. So Paul has taken the idea of a division, and he's actually magnified that by talking about factions. Factions. 
Paul is not new to the church thing. He's been around the block a long time. He knows that there will be some differences within the church and they just cannot be avoided entirely. In fact, these divisions or these factions must happen. Well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, it means that these things must happen within the church to accomplish a part of God's purpose within the church. The word must means it is a divine necessity. Now, you scratch your head and say, now why would it be a divine necessity for division and faction to exist within the church? Well, in case you think I'm making this up, the word must here is the word D-E-I, day, in the Greek, and it's used on several occurrences, and it's used in the same way, and it's used to identify a divine necessity. For example, Jesus used the term to describe His going to the cross. In John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It is a divine necessity that Jesus be lifted up, and we know that's a metaphor for His death on the cross. In the book of Acts, when the disciples had been arrested by the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel, they were instructed to stop with the threat of further imprisonment. And they said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. So this word must indicates that there is a divine necessity. So divisions or factions brought out by differences of doctrine or differences of practice must be addressed and corrected, which is supposed to result in repentance and submission to spiritual authority. So the individuals who are required to bring about this corrective conversation in Paul's instruction here, or in this analogy, if you will, are the ones who are, quote, approved, unquote, for spiritual leadership, and these individuals become evident within the church. These are the people that would say, now wait a minute, that is not right. Wait a minute, that's not what Scripture says. Stop that. You can't do that. That is inconsistent with what Scripture teaches. It is these individuals that have been approved by God to serve Him and the well-being of the church. And it is these individuals who are called to address and correct improper doctrine and improper, improper practice within the life of the church. These individuals become evident in the life of the church because they are the ones who want to put a stop to it. These are the men that are elected as elders, called as pastors, serve as deacons, become a voice calling the church back to the absolute truth of God's Word. The masses that sit in the chairs or in the pews of the church sit idly by following whomever the loudest voice might be, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. That doesn't guarantee that there aren't going to be some who say, well, I disagree with you, Bob. You're a great man and I respect you, but I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it and there's nothing you can say or do that's going to stop me from doing that. Well, that indicates a greater problem. That division indicates spiritual sickness. And when you have several people who share in that same type of spiritual sickness, they will create a group or a camp or a following, and they will rise up and say, we're going to object, we're going to ask you to stop teaching us these things, and we want you to give in to the culture or to the ways of the world, because after all, we got to blend in, we got to fit in, we got to be liked and accepted in order to be heard. You know, there's a good Greek word for that. You know what that word is? Baloney. That's not the truth. Those who are approved become evident within the church and they call out improper doctrine. They confront improper practice. And this group of people must exist in the church. And apparently, there is an absence of this being 
executed within the church in Corinth because of the widespread issues that Paul is having to deal with. Thinking back to previous chapters where the immoral man who was living with his father's second wife was allowed to do so without any challenge. About the individuals who visited the temple prostitutes and did so without any challenge. Those who are approved are evident. Therefore, factions are a divine necessity to show the church who can be trusted, who we should follow, and who is going to help us grow in our walk with God. There are always going to be tares among the wheat. There's always going to be the potential for division. And factions become division unrestrained. Factions are not merely disruptive, they are destructive. When left unchallenged, they will undermine any Christian group and they are not to be tolerated. Now let's take a pause here. Let me ask you this. Where are the individuals within the church today who have quote-unquote been approved and say, well, you know, homosexuality isn't really wrong. You know, God was talking to a specific time in a specific culture and God has evolved in His understanding and it's no longer wrong in the way that we might think it's wrong. But you know, after all, God created them that way. So how can it be wrong? Those individuals are not approved and where that line of thinking is allowed to root up, you're going to have factions within the church. Do you ever wonder why major denominations split? It's because one part has become a faction and they're saying, we're not going to go along with this any any longer. We're going to go do our own thing. And you know what you do? You need to go. You need to leave because you have no part in the life of Christ if you're going to disregard His absolute, eternal, authoritative Word so that it fits into a cultural ideology. It just cannot be. And the individuals who stand against that movement are the ones who are approved by God. Look at what Paul says about factious people in Titus 3, 10 and 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Paul says, talk to him. If they don't listen, give them another talking to. And if they don't listen, you got to get them out. Why? Because they are destructive. He says they're perverted and they are sinning and they are condemning themselves and the lifestyle that they are, quote-unquote, hell-bent in living. If we don't think that this is taking place in the church today, we have been seriously deluded by our enemy. This is killing the church. It is strangling the life out of the church. And Christians look more and more like the world with every passing generation. And there are well-meaning Christian leaders today who would say, look church, you got to get with the times. If you want to be heard by a homosexual, homosexual you've got to just allow it. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. That's not what God says. There's not an asterisk or an appendix or any kind of subtext within Scripture as it relates to these incredibly clear teachings. Whatever that executed sinful lifestyle might be. You know, God lumps homosexuality and with all the sins of immorality. Whether it be, whether it be lust or fornication or adultery, fill in the blank. It's not worse than the others. It's just like all the others. And oh, by the way, there are many within the church today who say, well, you know, adult, adultery is not that big of a thing anymore because, you know, people make mistakes and God's a God of grace and He loves them and He wants them to be happy. I've read my Bible many, many times that I've never ever seen the promise that God said, I want you to be happy. No, God says, I want you to be godly. I want you to be transformed. I want you to be conformed in the image of my Son. I don't want you to look like the world. Be in it, but don't be of it. We've lost that distinction. So 
So a factious man is a carnal man and is deceived in his self-approved spirituality. Spiritual leaders identify these individuals and are called to address the issues in order to maintain unity and purpose in the church. This is the environment that Paul is dealing with, divisions that have led to factions, which is destroying the health and the well-being of the church. Now we're going to look at that in greater detail in the third section, so hang on as we see that being proven in what Paul is saying to the church. So it is Paul's hope that his rebuke and instruction will motivate the approved leaders to deal with these issues. Now the second example of how this is contributing to their moral evil is self-indulgence. Verses 20 and 21, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So by by virtue of their actions, Paul has concluded that their gatherings are not for spiritual purposes, regardless of what they say, and regardless of what they think. The proof is in the pudding. Their gatherings are for self-indulgence. The word supper indicates that this is an evening meal. It follows the example of the Passover meal. It follows the example of what Jesus instructed after the meal that they had enjoyed together. So this was the evening meal followed by what was supposed to be a celebratory communion together, but this wasn't what was really happening. They had the ceremony, but not the reality. They had the form, but not the substance. It's kind of like when you go to church and they sing some songs, but you're not really sure what they're about, and you hear a message and you're really not sure what the point was, and you leave saying, well, I guess I'm glad he went today. I don't know. That's not the way church is supposed to be. Paul calls their motive into question right off the bat, saying they're not really coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. They're doing something incredibly different. So in this communal meal, and if you think back to Acts chapter 2, where all the believers had everything in common, and they were selling their possessions, and they were giving to the poor, and they had great unity, and the, and the watching world was noticing what was taking place, Place, and the church was growing like crazy because of, this, because of this incredible experience. That's not what's happening in Corinth. Poor members of the church came in hopes of sharing and the food that was going to be brought by the wealthier members. Not necessarily the best motive, but there's always hope that they would get something to eat while they came and worshiped the Lord. But this wasn't happening. The factious, unspiritual people were stuffing themselves, leaving nothing nothing for those who were hungry. They weren't even thinking about those who might come hungry. They drank till they were drunk, which was certainly an interesting sight to behold. It was more of a party than it was coming together at the Lord's table. Imagine a scene in a raucous bar where the drunk masses are loud and belligerent and shouting and perhaps arguing and maybe even fist fighting. They've embarrassed themselves by their conduct, by their behavior, by their actions, by their attitudes. And this is a snapshot of what's taking place in the church where quote-unquote God's people are gathering together to celebrate at the Lord's table and they're drunk. This was the scene at the love feast, self-indulgence and drunken revelry. Now the third example that Paul gives here is one of disrespect. He says in verse 22 as he recounts this, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Paul is so incensed that his response to what he has heard is simply, What are you thinking? What are you doing? If you want to gorge yourselves on food, and if you want to indulge to the point that you're drunk, stay at home. Don't go to church and pretend like you're celebrating the Lord's table. Keep that out of the church. It has no place in the church. Don't bring that attitude and don't bring that kind of behavior to the Lord's Supper. Do you despise 
the church of God, that you would do such a thing? Do you despise the needs and the well-being of others that you would disregard their condition and their state of being that you would ignore of what they need and deprive them of both spiritual and physical nourishment? I want you to imagine that we were having a communal meal together, not necessarily in the way that the love feast was experienced in the first century, but we have this thing now, a prayer gathering on the third Sunday of the month, and afterwards we gather together and have a meal. Imagine somebody that came into our fellowship that day, and we knew something about them, and you could tell by their clothing that they probably didn't have a lot. And you might look at their appearance and think, well, they might probably be hungry. But you say, hey, you, you get to the end of the line. We're first. We're members. We belong. You don't. You wait your turn. And if there's something left, God bless you. And if not, tough luck. Could you imagine such an attitude taking place at a communal meal? In a church? Could you imagine clinking pitchers or glasses of wine together saying, eat, drink, and be merry. Glug, glug, glug. Praise the Lord. I could never imagine such a thing. But this is exactly what is happening. By their actions, they despise the church of God. They are despicable to other people who are in need. Communion is a way that Christians recognize and celebrate our union with one another in Christ. Paul has just talked about this and dealing with the idol worship issue and eating food sacrificed to idols and he reinforces this central truth as it relates to the Lord's table. Is not the cup of blessing which we which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of one bread. You know what that's a celebration of? Our oneness in Christ at the cross. When we come to the table, we commemorate His body and His blood, which is a preview of what we're going to look at. We commemorate our union together in that body, joined through that blood. But the experience at Corinth only creates and deepens divisions amongst Christians instead of helping to resolve them. I've been in church worship services before where it was apparent that the Spirit was working and I've seen people go to one another and confess animosity and unforgiveness towards one another and I've seen relationships restored and renewed through confession, through repentance, through the extending of forgiveness and it brings oneness to the church. This is not what's taking place in Corinth. And Paul's response is, how can this possibly be taking place? I have nothing to praise you over in this regard. Now, the second part of our outline is the reminder. This is where we look at what is central to the Lord's table. We'll read verses 23 through 26 and incredibly familiar verses. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night of which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup also after, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until... He returns. So Paul wants to outline for them the real reason why they should be gathering together in this communal meal that is to be ended with a celebration at the Lord's table. Beginning part of verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now this is another interesting part of this passage. Most conservative scholars agree that Paul probably wrote 1 Corinthians before any of the Gospels had been recorded. If that is true, that means that Paul reciting the teachings of Jesus about communion predate the Gospels and is the first biblical record of what Christ instituted on the night that He was betrayed. 
Paul also indicates that he had received this directly from the Lord and not from the other apostles. So we know in the book of Acts that Paul had exposure to the apostles, but this specific teaching he received from the Lord himself and one of the many revelations that God gave to him and and giving him the inspired word to communicate. So Paul also reminds the church that he has already told them these things. It's not the first time that they would have heard this, but it is likely their love for wisdom and philosophy and self-elevation that has caused them to lose sight of the central truths as it relates to the Lord's Supper. So the focus... The focus that Paul wants to remind them on is, number one, the body. The latter part of verse 23 and 24. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, on the night he was betrayed, provides for us the historical setting. The night... After Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, it is on that night that he was betrayed by one of his own, and he was arrested while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So prior to his arrest, Jesus celebrated in the upper room this Passover meal, telling them that this is my body, which is for you. He took the bread, that which represented the exodus, now represents his body. It says he gave thanks, which is from the Greek word Eucharisteo, from which we get the word Eucharist, which is the name that some Christians give to communion. They call it Eucharist. He broke the bread and distributed to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Now, the body of Christ was not broken, and that's not what he says here. He does not say, my body broken for you. He broke the bread saying, this is my body given for you. It is his body symbolically multiplied and distributed to his followers. His body given for you. To the most beautiful words in all of Scripture for you. Jesus would say, I came to the earth for you. I gave the gospel to you. I suffered for you. I died for you. Jesus says, when you gather for communion, you gather in remembrance of me, of what I did for you. And the second focus is not only the body, but the blood. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the cup that had represented the lamb's blood smeared on the doorposts now came to represent the blood of the lamb of God shed for our salvation. The old covenant was ratified repeatedly through the sacrifice of animals and the shedding of their blood offered by men. But the new covenant has been ratified once For all time, by the blood of Christ, which God himself has offered for you. The old deliverance was merely from Egypt to Canaan. The new deliverance is from sin to salvation to eternity. It is a new covenant in many different ways. So we are to eat the bread and drink from the cup in remembrance of him of what He did for you. We remember what He did for us, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Jesus never mandated how frequently we should observe of communion, but He only says as often as you do so, you do so in remembrance of Me, proclaiming the Lord's death until He returns for you. We are reminded that He is coming again. 
His promise that we will be where He is. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a great part of celebrating in communion that He's coming back for us to take us to where He is? So the love feast of Corinth reflected none of these great truths that it is intended to communicate. It had devolved into self-indulgent feasts that probably didn't even take place in the halls of the temple idols. I wonder what the priests of these idols might say if drunken revelry were to break out in one of their meals. You know, Paul told them that there is a form of immorality that does not exist amongst the idols when they allow this incestuous man to live with his father's wife. I would bet that what's taking place in the love feast does not take place by those who celebrate and worship these imagined idols. Now, last on our outline, number three, is going to be the remedy. The remedy will take us from 27 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 34. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So all that Paul has talked about, there is a solution for. There is a way to fix this problem. And this is what Paul sets out to do in this remedy. It's almost like part two of the rebuke, but it actually is the solution to the problem. There's five pieces to this. Number one, there is a warning. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Clearly what was happening in Corinth is the epitome of unworthy participation. We have nothing to compare that to in our own modern day practice, but this unworthiness can also be present in other forms. The Lord's Supper can be ritualistic with no involvement of the heart or of the mind. It can be habitual where we just go through the motions without ever involving the emotions. It can be taken lightly instead of the serious reverence that it requires. We can come with bitterness in our hearts towards other believers and be unwilling to repent and restore when convicted. We can come with an unrepentant, sinful life lifestyle and just say, well, you know, God understands it's going to be okay. We can be bothered by how long it takes or by how poor the elements taste. I've heard people do that. Boy, that juice tasted terrible. Where'd you get that bread? It was not... What this tastes like is irrelevant. You know, there was a part of the Passover meal where they would eat the bitter herbs as a reminder of how serious the sacrifice really was. And in modern day comfortable Christianity, they would say, can't you get the good grape juice? Can't you get the kind of bread that's got some real flavor to it? Can't you make this a little bit shorter and a little bit more convenient? i got a schedule to follow. i got places to go and things to do. If it helps us identify with the sacrifice, it shouldn't matter if this takes us all day long. And it never does, but that's kind of the way we feel. So we come in an unworthy manner when we have other priorities in our life other than focusing on the most important thing we have ever experienced in our life. So anytime we come to the Lord's table with anything other than humble reverence, Focusing on the body and the blood of Christ, we potentially come in an unworthy manner. This results in our being guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, what does Jesus, mean? what does Paul mean by that? Well, when someone tramples on a flag, they're not disrespecting that piece of cloth, right? 
They're disrespecting what that piece of cloth represents. So when we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, then we are disrespecting what the table represents. His life, His death, His sacrifice, His forgiveness. We become guilty of mocking Jesus and treating Him with indifference. You know, there are moral people who are not Christians who would look at the way Jesus was treated as He was being paraded through the streets and they would say, ooh, that's not good, that's not right. He was such a good man. They're bothered by that. But Christians who come to the table in an unworthy manner are hurling the insults just as if they were standing in the streets approving of His journey to the cross. So therefore... This warning requires self-examination. Verse 28, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So to examine ourselves means that we look honestly at our hearts for anything that should not be there, asking God to reveal our sin. Now, this is not asking or expecting for perfection, because then nobody could come. But when we know, I'm sitting next to this person, and I really don't like them, and I don't want to talk to them, and it really wouldn't bother me too much if something bad happened to them, that's bad. That's coming to the table in an unworthy manner. When it's, can't we just get on with this? Can't we get to this? Can't we get over with this? It's not coming in a worthy manner. So we examine our motives. We examine our attitudes towards the Lord towards His Word, towards His people, towards His plans and purposes, towards the communion service itself. And so our lives should all come under private scrutiny before the Lord where we say, God, reveal to me my sin that I am not dealing with, that I am not aware of, that is displeasing to You. Bring that to surface so that I can confess it and repent of it. When we do this, the table becomes a special place for purifying the church because we are, in a sense, getting right with God. This is a vital purpose of communion and it's a part of Paul's remedy that reinforces the ideal of the significance of what communion is all about. When we don't examine ourselves We look at what it says here in verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So again, Paul's remedy involves the warning of judgment. Here, the judgment has the idea of chastisement or of discipline for disregarding the significance of the Lord's table. So the question is, do we want to be judged by God? Do we want to come under the chastising hand of the Lord? Are we willing to come to the table with an indifferent, self-righteous attitude and risk being disciplined by God? Well, I would guess we would all say no. And so we take a step towards that But we have this inclination of not taking the other step of repentance and being serious about remedying the significance of the problem, which is, or the seriousness of the problem, which is, I really kind of like my sin. I don't know that I really want to give it up. Can I have it both ways? Well, we can't have it both ways, but we risk the chastisement of the Lord in doing so. So thirdly, there is the evidence of the warning that Paul is giving. Verse 30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So apparently, in Paul's estimation, God is already disciplining many within the church of Corinth. They are weak and they are sick, indicating some kind of a physical ailment. He also says that a number of them have died as a result of this discipline. It brings back to our mind the discipline of Ananias and Sapphira when they said, we're going to sell a piece of land and we're going to give some of it to the church and we're going to be patted on the back as great Christians who love the Lord. Yeah, we're going to hold back a portion of it because we really don't want to go all the way with the Lord. 
And so when they stood before Peter and said, here is our gift to the Lord, God had already spoke to Peter. They lied and God struck them dead in their tracks. And what was the result of that? Fear, a holy reverence for God, spread within the church and within the world. Now, I don't know why God doesn't discipline the same way today as He did then, but it's very likely God is disciplining us in ways that we don't recognize or that we don't connect to any specific sin in our life. So if in the church of Corinth many are weak and sick and a number sleep, which is a euphemism for they are dead, when we see that in our own church, we ought to ask the question, God, is there anything in me that's bringing about your discipline that is being experienced in this way? We can't always tell the difference between discipline and pruning, but when we are pursuing the Lord with all our heart, He will reveal to us the difference. So the abuse of the Lord's Supper does not go unnoticed by God, and so God disciplines us when we continue to come to the table in an unworthy manner and disregard the sacrifice of Christ through our daily living. But discipline is avoidable, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. When I read that, I was reminded, and I didn't put it up for your reading, I was reminded of the Pharisee and the publican who came to the daily time of prayer. And the Pharisee boasted in his righteousness and in his goodness, and he was sure to clank the money that he was about to give so everybody could hear, ooh, he's given a lot today. He must really love God. The other man came before the Lord and said, I am unworthy. I am just a humble man in need of your love and your grace and your mercy. Which one walked out righteous? When we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. When we are serious in our self-examination, which involves confession of sin, repentance of the sin that God brings to the surface, restoration of broken fellowship that God brings to our mind, when we approach Him and His table that way, we will avoid God's discipline. When we are disciplined, number four, it is for our good. Verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now notice, there is a difference between discipline or judge and condemnation. Discipline is God's restorative act towards repentance. Condemnation is God's final pronouncement upon the unsaved or upon the unrepentant. Those who ignore God's discipline give evidence of their natural, unspiritual, unsaved condition. I'll tell you what, the very first sign that there is a spiritual problem is a lack of a need for any kind of repentance. Well, you know, God, I've evaluated my life, and i got to say, I'm doing pretty good. I can't find a single thing that you would be displeased with. I've checked all my boxes. I did all those things. I avoided all those really bad things. So, God, as I look at myself, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. There's not any of us that should be able to say that. Every single one of us, myself included, ought to give serious self-examination and say, God, that should not be in my life. God, I should not have that attitude about that thing. God, I should not allow that issue to linger any longer. When we no longer feel the need to repent, it should be a very, very harsh warning that not all is well in our true spiritual condition. So coming to the Lord's table is a way for us to improve the spiritual purification in the church. Why? Because we are coming to the Lord, confessing our sin to Him, repenting of our sin, restoring broken relationships, and living Christian life in a way that pleases God. Lastly, number five, this passage concludes with the admonishment. Verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
The communal meal is a great idea. Paul has no problem with it. But wait for all to be served. Don't be so excited or so selfish and eating the food that others are neglected. Wait for all to be served. Show respect and humility towards other people. After all, this isn't going to be your last supper. You're going to have another meal more than likely, so don't eat as if this is the last meal you're ever going to get. Verse 34, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So even to the poor people who are coming for the purpose of getting a free meal, Paul's saying, don't let that be the purpose for your coming to this meal. Eat at home. Don't depend on what you're going to get here for physical nourishment. Come here because you want to commune with the Lord and you want to commune with your brothers and sisters in Christ around this incredibly significant event. If you come with that kind of an attitude or if you execute the meal selfishly without any regard to others, then you're coming together for judgment, not for personal spiritual purification. Now, Paul concludes this by saying that there are other issues that I'm going to address when I get there, and it could relate to communion, it could relate to worship, it could relate to other things that are not specifically identified anywhere in the book of Corinthians. But Paul says, we're not done with this, we're going to talk about this more when I get there. So here we are, we're at the Lord's table. This is the Lord's table. It's not the church's table. It's not the pastor's table. It is God's table. It is a reminder of the body of Christ given for you. It's a reminder of the blood that was spilt for you. And we are to come with a spirit of examining ourselves, of ridding ourselves of any impure thing, a desire to restore broken relationships, a desire to leave here more determined to serve Him and follow Him than when you came in. It's a place for us to be brought together as a part of God's universal family. As a part of our preparation, would you pray with me as our instrumentals come to sing and play?